This is Marcel from the Picable Radio. Today I have the honor to bring to you Natalie Nelson. Natalie is the principal at Ashburton Primary School. Her school never really received much money since the 1920s and therefore were entitled for redevelopment. Natalie's school received a big check which enabled her to bring the school to the next level of education. Natalie tells the story of how she started on a journey to transform the school to a place of future education. Her approach is quite different to many others. She calls it design from the inside. I'll give you an example what that means. After coming up with key principles what the school should be about, they asked the children to create their new school themselves. You will learn why Ashburton Primary has floor-to-ceiling windows or different learning areas for different students. We talk about what it means to grow up in our complex world of today. What skills the kids need to learn and by the way, which are far beyond reading, writing and math. Kids today need to learn how to keep their energy level in balance, how they can relax their mind and how to deal with complex problems in general. Those skills become much more valuable in the future. Today's school focuses on deep thinking techniques because it's necessary for real creative work. You can outsource the process of writing, but you never outsource the creativity itself. Through that we talk about the three levels of thinking and how to get down to the core thinking where the creative magic happens. I think we all can do something about the future of our kids in the way they learn and even further in the way we all work together in our modern world. The insights from Ashburton Primary School are not limited to school education at all. They are applicable to the way we work together in our offices as well. So while you listen to this podcast, think about who else should be inspired by the story and pass on the ball so that more people get in contact with the future of education. I hope you enjoy this episode with Natalie Nelson, principal at Ashburton Primary. Natalie, thank you very much for joining me today at this Bicapo Radio. Um, you're the principal at Ashburton Primary School, if I'm right. Yes, that's correct. Thank you very much for joining me in this interview. Um, Natalie, just just to start, like, what does it mean today when you're a principal? I have no idea what the job is like. Um, it's a it's a very rewarding job. It's a very challenging and difficult job. Um, and really, what I believe my job is is to manage people's expectations. Um, and your role is really just to take children from A to B, um, but you do it in such a complex way. It's such a complex, changing world now as well. Um, you've got lots of different stakeholders involved. Um, at a school like mine with 560 children, we've not just got the children. We have 45 staff as well as a thousand parents. So it's about managing people's expectations about, um, you know, how to actually not just educate children academically, but socially, emotionally and physically as well is equally as important. My view on education now is if we're just creating literate and numerate and ICT savvy children, we're actually doing a disservice to the community. So it's also about, um, you know, giving children life skills to actually manage themselves in their, in their world, whatever choice they, they choose to go down um, in terms of jobs or creativity. Um, so it's about giving them a particular mindset for them to be able to achieve um, in the world. 
Uh, it's no longer empty vessels that we're trying to fill with facts and figures. There's too much information out there. It's about giving them the skill set really to sift through what's important and then turn that into something that becomes them um, and so that they can succeed in whatever choices that they actually make. I think it's harder uh, to be a societal member now than certainly when I was growing up. Um, there are too many things that they have to decipher and too many choices. They're overactive, they're overstimulated, they're timetabled to within an inch of their life and there's a lot of pressure on them. So, you know, education's more than just academically succeeding. It's that whole sort of holistic view, I suppose, that I, that I certainly would have about where we're leading our children in our school setting. Yeah, I think, yeah, just one thing that resonates with me, your, your like planned schedule for kids. I, when I remember my childhood, it's not so far away, but they, they, at least I want to believe that forever. <laughs> but we, when I did my homework after school, I could just go out and play. And that's not already true anymore for my daughter. She has like music lessons in the afternoon and sport and some things like this. So. Time management is probably one of the things kids learn early today. Yeah, and energy management. I energy. think that's something we don't actually talk about a lot is that, um, you know, how do you maintain your energy levels? It's things that we actually talk about at school with our children. Um, it's not just about the time because time is finite. Mm -hmm. It's about how do you keep your energy levels where they are and it's okay for you to sit and meditate or do different things and all of those skill sets that actually allows you to um, to recognize when you're feeling overwhelmed, when you're feeling overworked, and what do you actually do about that? So that's not a time schedule. That's more of a how do I manage my own energy levels um, within me? And it's okay to stop and it's okay to slow down. Um, I just have 10,000 questions just by <laughs> listening to you. I probably like first what I'm really happy in, Aust in, in Australian primary schools. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's just that the one that my daughter goes through, she goes to Torek Primary School. But they, they learned mindfulness practice yes. in, they just learned sitting and relaxing. And it's something that, um, today is considered as like very hip for, for people who work in corporates and have a think about their career and just, um, having this downtime like planned in and just having a meditation in the morning and those things. Um, and the kids learn it now in school. It's like yeah. amazing what, how that, how the learning environment changes. Like, Well, I mean, you know, there's lots of research, all the yeah. neuroscience that came out around, um, you know, how your brain actually functions has really driven the whole mindfulness or whatever you want to call it, resilience yeah. training, you know, positive education. There's lots of terms out there, but essentially it's all meaning the same thing. Um, and it really is about getting them to understand how their brain functions and why their body does what they do and, um, and, and, you know, productivity only comes sometimes when you're actually sitting quietly. Productivity doesn't actually come just because I'm busy. Being busy doesn't actually mean you're actually thinking and, and doing all those things that you actually need to do. You're just being busy rather than processing. And, um, so it's interesting. We run a, we run our own program, which we've called Smile. We've been running it for about four and a half years now. And it's based on, we've developed it ourselves, so the teachers actually write it with, in collaboration now with the students. They're actually now involved because they've been doing it for four years now, so now they understand it, so they actually help come up with the activities and some of the content and what they want to learn about. Um, so that's based on our three school values, which is respect, resilience, and responsibility, and we spend a year unpacking what that actually means. So we talk about respect, but what does respect actually mean? How do you model respect? What does it do for you? How do you do that for other people? 
um, and resilience and responsibility. Resilience is often a really difficult one to teach because you can only really teach resilience if you've got a problem. And if children don't have a problem, that's of significant value. You can't actually show resilience. So mm. it's a quite a difficult concept to actually teach to young children. Um, and we do it in a way that's more relevant to them. You know, I've lost my lunchbox and mum and dad are going to be upset with me. How do you actually manage that? How do you have a conversation with mum and dad? What do you actually do? And it's okay to cry about it, but now it's time to actually, you know, do something about that. Um, it was interesting. I was talking to a group of students um, just a couple of weeks ago to say, what is it we want to do next in our um, sort of level of responsibility? And their question to me was, at what point is it okay to say no to somebody and not invite them to play? When that person starts to become really annoying, what words do we actually use and is it okay to say that and then how do we manage that after? And the other question they had, which I found really interesting, was um, uh, was sometimes you don't, your friendship with somebody stops and they don't know how to exit their friendship in a nice and an appropriate manner. And I thought they were two really interesting questions to actually ask, to explore and what happens to you when you're allowed to be upset and... Nice life skills. Yeah, like it's very, yeah, really it's interesting. Just, absolutely, I get mm. this life skill topic now. What do you what do you teach there? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, uh, Natalie, you you, to- you talked last week at the last conference, Lean Agile Systems Thinking, about the transformation of your school and um, how then in the end you had like the the pleasure or the, the great time like opportunity to invest. Eight millions. Was yeah, eight point three million. Eight point three millions into your school. <laughs> nice. It's a very nice. How did you got into that situation? A great opportunity. Let's go a bit backwards. How did you became maybe a principal? So I went into my long story or my yeah, short story. Yeah, and you can cut and paste whatever you need to do. <laughs> um, so I went into education late. So I had another career and I had children, and then I decided to uh, go and do a degree at RMIT. So I did that and graduated with first degree honours. So I thought, oh, I might be actually quite good at this. Um, so I actually was a student teacher at the school that I'm now principal. Mm-hmm. So I did my internship there and did my graduate year at that school and then went to another school for an, a number of years and did my master's in school leadership and was selected to be one of 20 people to travel to England to do a, some research projects over there. Um, in what was then called the Young Leaders Program. So that was pretty exciting to do that. And then completed my master's in school leadership at the University of Melbourne and then was asked to go and be the assistant principal at a school for two weeks. Mm -hmm. That turned into a term. That turned into three years. Um, And then I applied for this job. It became available. And, um, yeah, I was a successful candidate in getting this job at Ashburton where I had done my graduate year. So I walked into the school as the principal with staff members who I actually worked with about six years ago or seven years ago. So that was an interesting experience to then Mm -hmm. go and be the boss of people that I worked with (laughs) not that Mm -hmm. long ago. So that was good. And then when, when when you got the job, you said... I need eight millions. <laughs> or, like, how did you? No. So what we had, it was just timing, I guess. Um, I knew that the school uh, were possibly going to get six million dollars for its redevelopment. So I did know that before I applied for the job. That was one of the reasons why I was very interested in, in attaining the job. 
Um, but, you know, being political, Education Department is a political organisation. We were unsure, depending on which party got in, as to whether it would actually, we would receive the money. But we, at the same time, the federal government, um, when Kevin Rudd was in giving away $3 million to every school as part of the education revolution, we'd already received that money. So we had decided to build a gymnasium um, and a performing arts centre, mm-hmm. hoping that the state government would still come through with the $6 million to redevelop the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started with the $6 million. We knew that we had $6 million, so, you know, political, polit- particular polit- political party got in um, and said, yes, you know, we were going to be receiving $6 million. So um, what we then, what I then said about doing was having long discussions with our key stakeholders. So parents, students and staff needed to be involved in the discussion around school design and school development. So I didn't just want to build pretty buildings or just have the same mm. as what we actually wanted or already had, which we could have done. That would have been a really easy solution to do. Um, but, you know, we were, we were given a, a task of, you know, $6 million is nothing to be sneezed at. You're never going to get that money again. And, you know, you're designing a school not only for this generation, but their children and their children to come. So, you know, Ashburton Primary School had been built in 1928. It had never received any money since 1928. It had one small redevelopment. So the chances of it ever getting money again were going to be very, very minimal. So we really need to be very thoughtful in how we actually wanted to design the learning spaces to actually match the philosophy of teaching that we wanted to develop. At the time, we didn't really have a philosophy of teaching. So really what we were doing in our discussion was talking about how we want to teach children and what we actually want to do. We didn't even appoint an architect for about six months until we had developed, um, I suppose, what you call a business plan. Or Mm -hmm. For me, it was criteria that I then wanted to give to the architect to say you design or you tender for the project based on these outcomes are what we're actually looking for. Um, so we started discussions with, I had a, an expert come and work with the teachers who had done this before, who had been involved in building design. And he worked with the teachers and we basically used a concept called designing from the inside out, mm-hmm. which is looking at what, you know, the client is the child, so we started with the child. So we started with what are the attributes of a child we would like for them to walk away with after seven years of, of school at Ashburton. And we ended up with a list, and we did that with a group of parents, a group of children, and a group of teachers. Um, and we worked separately as three different groups, and it wasn't until the end, and they had to write a report. I then got copies of all of the reports, and I was hoping it was all going to be <laughs> Very, very similar because then that became the criteria that we gave to the architect. So we started with the attributes of what we wanted out of students and we honed that down to five key attributes that we so wanted. Do you interview them or how, like, how, how do we I just have to had, imagine that? Yeah, like, we just had a groups. discussion. So as yeah. a staff to start with, we had what were our five key characteristics that we would like a child to actually be able to date, to say that, you know, you are an Ashburton Primary School student you know so one of them we wanted them to be critical thinkers we wanted Mm -hmm. them to be creative we wanted them to be very respectful and have extraordinary manners that was really Mm -hmm. important to us we wanted them to understand um, that they belong to a greater being than themselves so you know very privileged society that we live in especially in Australia it's not just about what I get but what I do in return so how do I contribute um, back 
I can't remember now what the other one was, but essentially it was about the characteristic of a person that we would like them to walk away with. But this was not the children. Yeah. This was not the children. This was just the teaching staff and the parents. All right. Mm-hmm. Then we said, well, if that's what we're actually wanting to achieve in a child, how do we go about teaching that? So what are our beliefs and understanding about teaching and learning? Not about teaching literacy or numeracy, but about how do we make sure that those characteristics are in that child by the time that we've left. Mm -hmm. Then we talked about, well, in order to do that, what resources do we actually need? So we talked about human resources, so the type of quality of teacher we want there. Um, We talked about environmental factors of, you know, what kind of spaces do we need? um, How do we actually go about achieving that? Then we went into what do the design spaces actually look like? Not talking about are they single classrooms? Do we do flexible open plan learning? Um, None of those things. But what kind of teaching spaces do we need in order for us to be able to teach the children to have those characteristics? So we talked about, for example, the importance of um, having an art space somewhere close to whatever we called the classroom space Mm -hmm. so that if we were doing an activity that required that capability or children wanted to go there independently, they were able to do that. So we talked about those sorts of things of what needs to be within the classroom handy for those children to actually be able to access to demonstrate creativity or to demonstrate critical thinking at an at-needs basis, not let's all pack up and go to the art room now. It's about how do we make, you know, even ICT equipment readily available to them. So what's this, having... like, if I imagine that I'm a principal and just got eight million as well, yeah. <laughs> I just, like, go step by step here. Um, is this like you had the you had this discussion with the teachers, you had the discussion with the uh, with this, um, parents, yes. and you came up with this base principles and and... How does the like? How have you facilitated this? Then was this just discussion as well? How we see envisioning this like planning out, or have you yeah. done a, like a floor so, plan? Or well, we weren't even at this point. Yeah. We were just talking about concepts. So we were talking about conceptually, you know, what? How do we actually behave within particular spaces? So the group of children who were selected to work with um, an interior design student from Swinburne University, actually, mm-hmm. um, and that was her project. So she came out and worked with 20 children and they did this incredible project where they she actually stepped them through. When you're reading, where is the best environment for you to actually read? When you're being creative, what sort of things do you need in your environment to actually help you be creative? And they then drew, visually drew, on this huge big storyboard, all the things that they would like in an ideal school situation. These are all the things that we would actually like within my classroom and my teaching space. We had beautiful drawings of, you know, we want a disco ball in the middle of the room and there was (laughs) mezzanine levels and a slide out the window and all of those things that creative children actually do. But they did develop some uh, five main things that we took away from that that really challenged my thinking that I didn't think was important for a child but was really important to them. And those five elements are actually in the design aspect of our final product of our school. So one of them is what they said to me was that um, it's very uncomfortable to sit on a chair and read a book. Um, and I didn't quite agree with them. But anyway, they made me sit on the chair and read a book for silent reading after lunch. And they are correct. It is really uncomfortable because I don't sit on a chair to read a book. I lay on the floor or I'm lounging around. 
So they said we would like different styles of furniture within our classroom or the ability to choose where we would actually like to sit to do an activity. That's a pretty fair request, I would say. Mm-hmm. The other the other thing they said was that they wanted floor-to-ceiling windows. And I was very anti this and they had to come and explain to me and, and present as to why we would need floor-to-ceiling windows because every teacher knows that they're the most important person in the room and everyone should be looking at them and you'll be distracted by people walking past or other things and you need to be focused and concentrating. Um, so they made me sit on the floor uh, with them while the teacher was giving the instruction and all I could see was a pink wall, which was not very stimulating. So we had definitely have floor-to-ceiling windows in our building now and it all looks out on nature. Uh, the other thing they wanted was to be able to have the inside and the outside um, connected. They wanted to be a part of the outside of the world, should be part of their classroom, very naturalistic-based. So they wanted to be able to see trees and flowers and and develop those gardens as well and to be able to open a door and step right out into it, which is what we've done. Just to um, clarify, yeah. what age of the children we're talking they about? They were year three, so year they would three. have been 10. So that's exactly like the age yeah. of my daughter. Yeah. Yeah, nice. They're very articulate in yeah. what they actually needed. The other things, they, they wanted voice-controlled lockers which no one's come up with voice-controlled lockers yet. But we explored that a little bit further because I had always imagined that the children would kind of rove and rotate around the different classrooms that we had and they would be comfortable about that. But after talking to them, they needed, we are human beings like, a bit territorial. So they wanted just somewhere to place their bag, their books, their belongings that was theirs that could be messy if they wanted it. No one had to tell them it had to be tidy. But it was their own sense of identity um, which is what we have. We have a little tub and a locker that's their own space. The teachers talked about that themselves. They didn't care if they didn't have a desk in the classroom because we don't have teachers' desks in the classroom. But they wanted somewhere to put the handbag, the stickers, mm-hmm. their belongings that could be locked that no one else is allowed to touch, yep. which is a very humanistic yeah, kind of thing. So we created and developed those things that actually met that criteria. The other thing they wanted was a sense of space as they walked into their classroom. So we developed this foyer, which was very indulgent for us to have this foyer with nothing, you know, square meter, which is important in classrooms. Um, But it was like they wanted to talk about a sense of community that when you walked in, you felt you belonged somewhere and the visual representation on the walls as you walked in and the naming of all the pods that we did represented the characteristics of the children who were actually in there. And it makes a really big difference. So you don't walk directly into the classrooms in our environment. You actually walk into a space where you realise and you look around. So they've got all these beautiful pictures and all these things that represent them. When you actually walk in, you go, oh, this is where I'm about to go into. Then you walk into the classroom spaces with all the other bits and pieces so you're not in opening there. a door and crash into the lesson you no know. you actually yeah. open you actually have to go through two doors to actually enter into their space so all right you go yeah. through the first door and obviously there's toilets and, and a media center so yeah. it's but it's separate and then you go through a second door to actually enter their space so it's like a transition space is actually what they wanted and they talked about this a lot talked about this sense of community and this sense of belonging um, so the two key things that we talk about all the time at our school is that this concept of community and this concept of active learning. So they have to be actively engaged in their learning. And those two words came out of the children in their study mm-hmm. about three or four years ago. Nice. It's a lot. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's like, a, it was a long process. Like um, this is this is in a school, and I'm so happy to like to hear this. 
like many companies right now building new towers. We can mm. have a look at this. We look here out of the window in the Docklands, building new offices, open floor plan, where they pretty much apply those things. Like, yeah, like still and today in offices, they try to create an open floor plan where they, where they, um, you can see each other, but on the same time, you need to create this belonging and privacy for each mm -hmm. individual team that you, um, that you not like feel like you're, you're on an open field and everyone can see your back yeah, and everything what you do. So you have this very nice trade off yes. between I can see you, you're busy on the phone or you're just focusing on the keyboard, but I also have my private space. And with the, with the lockers thing, just it's, like so when you come to that when you don't have your own desk mm. anymore in offices you just like big companies and start giving everyone lockers and you have this this roving concept where you just pick mm. a desk you like to work today and um, um it just it's incredibly great that you did this then like and the great outcomes of, of working with young children just same ideas even better yeah like, well, even better because i think yeah. children are very honest yep you know, they will say, this is what we like, this is what we don't like. And if you ask them, you'll get the right answer. Um, you know, as adults, we, we think that they don't actually, we don't give them enough kudos for what they actually do understand and know. Um, I think sometimes we think they're too young to understand, but they actually understand much better than we would ever give them credit for. That, that, that concept, I think, of the um, of our need to belong but be separate, I think is a really interesting human one we we crave to be connected with other people but we also crave to actually be alone and have our own belongings and our own space and i think that that is what you struggle with in a school setting or a large organization in an office as well is yes i belong to a greater good but i also need to be by myself to do to do my work so the way we we do that within our own school environment, um, especially with the older children who talked about it more than the younger children. So if you're about sort of between five and eight years old, you still really want to belong to a part of a bigger group. Um, you know, you want to be with the teacher, especially if you're five, you're at the teacher's feet the whole time. And then as you learn independence, you are happy to be with your peers. Um, but certainly from about sort of nine, ten years old, there's this sense of, you know, I understand how to be by myself. I want to work by myself. That's often the language the student children start to talk about is they want to do this independently. They don't want to collaborate with other people. Um, sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. So what we do in our classroom environment from about year three um, onwards is we have different uh uh, what do I say, desks, chairs, heights of things, different opportunities for them to sit in different spaces and we name them. So if I'm like a meerkat, then I actually sit at the higher tables because I'm more likely to concentrate for longer periods of time because I can observe and see what's going on. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. And all they need to do instead of getting up, so they're the kids who used to get up and go and sharpen their pencil 20 times doing a task because they'd have to go and talk to everybody on the way. Now when they sit at a high table, they can just observe and see what everybody's up to so they don't move. Um We've got kids who like to be in the cave and we call it the cave. So that's a desk that faces the wall. Um, and there's two people can only sit there and they're the people who just need to be by themselves to concentrate. They don't want to be distracted by the things that are around them. They find that too, too difficult for them to actually do the task at hand. So they'll sit in the cave and then we have those that like the campfire, which is a round table collaborative 
you know, having a chat as they're working and all sorts of different things. The children have come up with all the names for everything. Um, but it's about understanding how I actually learn and how I work. And sometimes in a task you want to be able to talk with someone, but sometimes you just want to be by yourself and just let me do the task that I actually need to do. It's about setting up that environment to allow that to happen um, so that they can actually have success. We had a number of questions from parents when we started to do this. They were not as keen as I was um, to actually allow this to happen with their children. They thought that I was experimenting and that every child should sit on the floor and every child should sit at a table and their desk at the same height. Um, and then when they actually came in and saw what was happening, um, they were very much on board. But to begin with, it was a little bit, mm, a bit too progressive. I'm not quite sure this is actually going to work. Um, but our concentration levels of our children became much higher, especially the boys. I hate to be gender specific, but boys generally are bouncier, what we'd call bouncier in the classroom than girls. You know, they tend to can't sit still for very long, which is physically they're designed to not be able to cross their legs anyway so why we make them do that I don't know um, but you know they'll sit for much shorter periods of time their concentration span is, is shorter um, and they need to be more active um, generally so it's about creating that classroom environment for them to do that um, you know when they're sitting on the floor they're allowed to bring a pad and a pen and doodle they're allowed to bring a, a fiddly toy we've got lots of those in the classrooms for some children they need to sit on a what's called a slant board mm -hmm. Um, where their hips are raised off the floor because it's actually really uncomfortable for them to sit on the floor. That's okay. Some children sit on a chair. I don't really mind how you're doing it so long as you're actually listening. And different people listen in very different ways. So as long as you're listening and doing the task, it doesn't really matter how you do whatever you're doing physically. That's that's this, the only important part. Like if you go into this concentration, how you how you focus or how do you what do you need to actually find a deep thinking moment and, and do this like like that you have some fiddly tools or so just like just from the other side where i come from corporate trainings and those things i had those out mm. like i was like in in workshops you see people who who then start really creating good ideas when they build something with a with, with a nice fiddly toy and just yeah uh, play around with it while they're intensely looking at the conversation and working which is a nice reason why as you said like doodling in in the classroom is such an such a great thing then because your modality of moving your arms and like recapping the information with a pen is like um, if you can't write it down it's like draw it yeah draw yes, it down. yeah and this is this helps you really to to clarify and to 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 come up with the ideas in itself. So, you said like the children can doodle in their classroom. Can you elaborate on that? Maybe what do you think is behind? So, for example, when we're teaching writing, um, I think for years in Australia and probably other educational settings in, as well, we focus so much on the skill set of writing and not on the creative thinking of writing. So, writing is really thinking and then recording your thinking. Um, so we don't really mind how you begin to write. For years and years and years, we've constantly had so much on, you know, this is what a sentence is, these are the components of a sentence, this is how we punctuate so that the audience can read it. We've now realised that, uh, you know, through our study of neuroscience and all of the other bits and pieces is that 
in order for you to be able to be a good writer, you actually need to be able to conceptualize your thinking first. So we now do something called seeds. You know, we, we have a picture stimulation or they're allowed to draw, record, plan out, use a graphic organizer, whatever it is that actually gets them stimulated. They spend most of the time doing the thinking and the planning. Cause if you get that right in your head and you can kind of massage either a narrative story out or a procedural text or whatever it actually is or a poem, if they can get that connection right in their heads first the actual mechanation of writing is a really quick and easy thing then we know we could teach them how to edit that's not the most important part of it the most important part of it is can you actually connect ideas together to actually express something because writing's about communication it's not actually about writing and I think for many years we taught writing as you know this is writing and it's a task mm-hmm. and it became really dutiful and we had lovely writers but we didn't have really good thinkers. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that we've switched it around, we've been doing it for about 12 months, it's just been incredible to see that quality of thinking now coming out because we're giving them the time and the tools to plan carefully and to connect their ideas together before they start putting a, an actual structure of a sentence down. So we, when you when you said like they, you, know, you teach more like to conceptualize and how to structure... I, I missed the point of how you do it. Like, how does a child then, like, what is this seed or what is this? How so, do- for example, we might, the, the child might bring in a seed from home or we might have it, you know, we, yeah. call, we call it a seed, but it yeah. could be anything. It could be, um, you know, a flower that they found on the way to school or um, a, a piece of writing even that somebody else has done or a word or a, I don't know, they bring in all sorts of things. It's actually physically, so if they bring in a physical item, it's actually better than just, you know, a concept. And they have a little box and inside they put all their little physical artifacts that they've collected. Then that is what actually stimulates their thinking. So we we teach them through what we call the three levels of thinking. So it's surface thinking, deep surface and core thinking. Mm -hmm. So you only get to write something once you've gone to the core thinking. So mostly our thinking is at a deep surface level. So it's the superficial thing. I described the object. I I talk about its functions. You know, um, deep surface level thinking is that it might have a purpose in life. So what is actually that purpose? But the core thinking is what is the actual major thing around this that you actually want to write about? Does it remind you of something that happened in your life and then you write about that experience? What is, um, you know... Is that thinking around, you know, your concept around poverty? Can you actually write about that? So they might have brought in a leaf, for example. Mm-hmm. So we talk about the surface level of the leaf and then we talk about, well, you know, what's the role of the leaf and what's the role of, you know, sustainability. Then their core thinking is around, um, you know, sustainability and poverty. So then they actually start writing about that. That's what we want them to write about. You can't get to my opinion about poverty or sustainability if I'm 10, unless I've actually gone through some levels of conversations and questions to really unpack that. And they can write about it. They actually do have opinions and they do have ideas and it's quite fascinating. So let see. me recap whether I get it. Mm. Let me <laughs> assume I'm, I'm back seven or 10 years ago or yeah. something in this age and you're, um, I found a Lego stone under my bed and I, I was missing, this was the missing piece the cornerstone, yep. the one thing I was missing to finish my work, and I bring it to school, and it's like, okay, I can write about the Lego stone is how it works, very artificial, yeah. artificial, easy thing, and then 
what the purpose of this Lego stone of, of what I'm doing there is. But if I then dream further, what I could do with, if I have unlimited Lego stones, I could build the world. Yeah. Yeah. Or imagine if the world was made of Lego stones, what would you actually, what would your world look like? How would that function? Can you write a narrative piece about that? Or can you write, you know, a poem about the lost Lego piece and where has it been? Has it been on an adventure? Did it grow legs? Did it, you know, it's that sort of thing that stimulates them and they get really excited and then they go away and plan it and think about it. And and the writing piece can take weeks. It's not, let's just get this over in 50 minutes. You know, this is a, a long process because writing is a long process because it's so much thinking and going back and not just editing the mechanics of writing, it's restructuring your thinking around writing and your character development or, you know, and we're aiming for shorter pieces rather than longer pieces because it's harder to write shorter pieces that have meaning than it is to write a long mm-hmm. piece. Yeah, there's this quote so, like, sorry that my email is so long. I yes. have not enough time. <laughs> <laughs> to edit it, yes. Yeah. That's exactly what we teach the yeah. children because nice. it is, and you know, I mean, you can use lots and lots of words, but... Can you choose the right word? You know, can you choose the right five words in a sentence to get the same meaning? And that's the kind of strategies we actually give them. And that that's the skill set we want them to walk away with. So, like, if I combine, like, if I connect this tool to my world when I mm. work with people on, let's say, in hackathons or something where they, where they create innovation, innovative ideas, like, you, you start with something, but... Um, coming up with an idea but the interesting thing happens when you um, combine ideas let's say a toaster and a microphone what, what could that be what could yeah. you do with that and then the crazy things come out in innovation games it's called the hot tub because you just put everything together and just boil it and uh, this is it really makes sense for me to like think about crazy narratives you could come up with when you just combine Things, mm. things what could you else do with that or like in a complete different context yeah very two nice. very unrelated ideas or two very unrelated artifacts put them together what could they actually do together like where could you actually take them and then bring a third element in that's very unusual and and see what the kids can do with that it's quite it's incredible you can teach thinking mm-hmm. you can teach people to think differently so in 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 when we when we talk about like when I teach Picablo or teach um, visual thinking, visual facilitation, um, we we differentiate between this um, like more analytical text-driven thinking and this big picture thinking where you like solve problems. It's more the visual thinking mm-hmm. brain. And I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I I think when the uh, when you when you go to this deep thinking mode, you actually make this bridge that you activate both like. You see the big picture and like what you could else do, build the whole world in Lego, and then you can come back to the verbalizing and putting it into detail and put it out in words. Yep. So this 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 basically activates both parts of the brain of at the same time, which is quite a, like it's the, it's the powerhouse. It is. Yeah. It is. But you've got to go through those channels first to yes. then go back and use that logical part of your brain. Yeah. Where you, we've, you know, we still need to teach the skill set of writing because there's still, you yeah, know, there's a sure. process and yeah. there's, you know, conventions that we have to teach and correct punctuation and spelling. All of that's important, but it's not the most important thing, you know, to begin with. The, to begin with, it's about your ideas 
and what you're going to communicate and how you're going to go about doing that. The mechanics of it we can teach you as we're doing that. Let's stay with writing for a yeah. second. When we teach writing in, in Picablo, we, we basically said it's great that you have a cursive handwriting, but what you really need when you work write for others is like printed letters. I don't mind whether they are capitals or just mm. printed lower uppercase. That's that's all good, but it's much more readable for um, for people um, working with you on a whiteboard or so. When you when you later when you are having nice clean handwriting printed letters. However, my as I say, my daughter is ten. She's really keen on her cursive handwriting, mm. and I. I see myself teaching her like uh, how how to do cursive handwriting, and the interesting uh, thing is, I think there's a, and that that made me basically stop from telling her you don't need cursive handwriting. It's just I think there's a huge part in her personality development in that she's um, she wants to have cursive handwriting, a very nice one, by the way. Yes. Yeah, she's very <laughs> she's practicing letters. Like she doesn't like her S, so she. Practice lowercase s's, and I told her, go yeah. shopping as others. Maybe you'll find a nice s somewhere. But <laughs> um, what do you think of, of handwriting in, in personal development, like for a child? Look, it's an interesting debate, handwriting in mm -hmm. education. Um, and certainly in Victoria, it, it, it's a debate that goes round and round with most schools and any educators. So we talk about is there value in teaching handwriting is one of those big discussions that we have, especially when most people type now anyway. Should we be teaching touch typing earlier? Is there a place for handwriting? What does it actually do? You know, and is it, should it just be printing? Should it be cursive? And every school would have their own personal view on that we do teach handwriting mm -hmm. we teach touch typing and handwriting i still think that there's a place for handwriting because there is research around the actual physical mechanization of using your hand to write does actually something with your brain there's a connection that you don't get with typing and no especially question, yep. especially if you know i would hate for a child to start typing a story on the computer because there are so many things it's telling you you're doing wrong, like little red squiggly underlines and all sorts of things, um, and they get so caught up with the spelling of things that they forget what they're actually writing. And I find if they handwrite it, I don't care what kind of handwriting it looks like, but if they're writing, they're just getting down their ideas. I don't care about punctuation. I don't care about spelling. At this point in time, it's as fast as you can get those ideas down. Children love handwriting it's one of those things that 50 minutes every week across our school we do a handwriting task because the children ask to do it i think it's the meditative quality of handwriting that they actually like not the handwriting itself every classroom that i walk into who are doing handwriting nobody is talking all they're doing is just concentrating on forming those letters the best way they can do. It is the most amazing thing to watch. And I've watched it for years and years and years. And every year I go, oh, you know, should we be teaching handwriting? And every year the children say, but we actually really like it. It's one of the things we like to do. And I don't know if it's the mastery of something. You know, it's, it's a skill set that if they practice hard enough, they can master it and they can see evidence of their results. They like to be really good at it. Mm -hmm. Um But it is a fine motor skill that you can't get anywhere else other than by writing. You know, it's not something you can... Writing is a really great way of teaching a fine motor capability. Um, so I'm very happy for it to be there. Whether it has value, cursive or printing, I, I think most adults print and don't 
once they've finished cursive writing in year six, I don't think they probably ever pick it up again. Um, but for the most part, high schools would just print, the children there would, would just print rather than do cursive writing. All right. Okay. Yeah, so, so high schools yeah, high schools would never teach write, like cursive writing. They would rather the children print so they right. can read it. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't yes. it? It's quite interesting. But there's something about um, the, the meditative quality of yep. just practicing your handwriting. I'm yep. pretty sure that's what it is that they like, not the actual handwriting. And it, 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 um, I, I makes complete sense for me. For example, when I set up a training room in the morning, I draw out like the welcome flipchart page and put it on the door i set up like the mm. write other pieces for the things it's like this actually is my preparation yeah just by putting this writing it again i'm just getting myself into this mode I, i'm teaching this now so i completely get like i, I know another guy I interviewed um, keith graves and he he said like he, he does the same he just draw like he, he arrives very early and then writes everything up for this workshop and it's the same thing. Like it mm. um, helps me to, yeah, prepare. It's a mental preparation. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a process. Exactly. Yeah, nice. yeah, I I yeah. agree. <laughs> I see children do it. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm very happy that they can doodle in the classroom at yes. Ashburton Primary School. It's a very nice thing. Um, what do you like to share apart from that? Like about. In the context of learning, mm. like you have a great learning environment, I probably would like to see this one day and come to an open public yes, event. Yes, well. yes, you're more than welcome to come and have a look around. Um, I think what I would like to say is that the learning environment is actually critical. So the physical components of where children actually learn or where adults learn actually does make a difference. I probably wouldn't have said that before I'd gone through this process. I probably would have said, oh, you can kind of make anything work. But now having gone through that process and seen significant difference in not just the academic outcomes of the children, but their well-being and their their joy at being at school and their ability to engage with the different environments that we've actually set and what they can now do in those um, and how grateful they actually are, I, I would say that it makes a really big difference. You know, whether you are comfortable, whether the heating is correct, whether you, what you can see outside a window is really significant. I never would have thought that at all, but it, it is. You know, the lighting is important, being able to access the resources right where you need them. All of those things are actually quite important to your day-to-day -day mm -hmm. thing so that you can get on with the thinking at hand, that you can get on with the task that needs to be done rather than being distracted by by those other bits and pieces. I remember I uh, changed jobs for a little period of time, was asked to go in um, to a particular area and I couldn't even find a stapler and some paper clips and how frustrating that was. <laughs> you know, and I'll, you, you know, you have one of those roving desks, you didn't even have your own spot. And I'm like, oh, actually, I feel really uncomfortable because I don't, you know, like it takes too much time to then go and find a stapler at somebody else's desk to staple. I just need to have it there. You know, it's wasting my time and then I'm distracted and then I have to then go back in to do what I was doing before. Um, so they're little significant things though that, but they do make a difference. You know, that, that idea around, and the children talk about it, that idea around being collaborative and working with other people, but also that sense of self. 
you know, that balance between the two is so significantly important and that I can work at a table with four other people, but I might actually be thinking by myself and I need you three to be quiet while I can do that. And they're, they're able to say that to people, you know, it's, I need to think so everyone's got to be quiet or, you know, now we need to talk about this or, yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite interesting. This, for me, like I, because I work in corporates um, a lot, like I worked for MYB in the past three years and, um, this is like we went to an agile transformation where where we um, like redesigned two offices and like completely makes sense like when we started um, the new office we moved in there everyone like it was too loud for example because mm-hmm. no one was used to this new environment of having this open floor environment everyone was more like in their own shoebox working style yeah. we were too loud and 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 in the end um, people either left or adjusted mm. to that and or actually rearranged that to have this like different ways of working so we have little booths somewhere you can go to and hide and work on a laptop or you can just sit in the middle with your team somewhere so you have like different styles of working and it's yep. exactly what what um, we corporates now do as well um and and yeah invest a lot of money probably more than a couple of eight millions mm. in into that and it's and just to like one thing that came to my mind when you saw uh, said uh, the children have like drew a slide out of the window to go to the playground or something um this is not so far away mm. for example the Google office in Zurich and yes. Switzerland, they, they have a slide in their office. So those I things, would have loved to have had a slide yeah. out the window. Uh, unfortunately, the Department of Education wouldn't let me do that. But For um, some reason. For some reason. But I certainly would have loved to have mm-hmm. done that. I mean, how you sort of interact, um, yeah, going from inside to outside is a really sort of significant um, thing. The one thing I do, I thought was very interesting when I did the design is that I still gave myself an office. Mm-hmm. So I still have four walls. Everybody else is very open plan, um, but I still have four walls. And we had a long discussion because I actually didn't want that. I actually wanted to be at the centre of the school, of course, um, in a glass house is what yeah. I wanted to do. And I wanted you to walk past me as you came through the front of the door. Um, but physically we couldn't actually fit that in. And then so I have got I've got two glass walls that you can actually see in, but they've got the, you know, little privacy setting. But I have a fish tank that divides me between um, my office and, and the front foyer. So you mm. come in and then you see the fish tank and you can see me through mm. that in the fish tank was our compromise around um, being able to be seen. But there are things that are confidential or that need that level of privacy that we did then decide actually do need a door on that to be able to shut the door to say, look, you know, unfortunately in my role there are things that need to be done mm. confidentially. But I would have much rather had that kind of sitting partly as you sort of come through. So I'm still right next to the front door because I'm a bit of a sticky beak. I like to know what's going on. Um, so I see everyone coming and going and, you know, they come in and have a chat, which is what I was after. I wanted to be open and welcoming and always be available. But at the same time there needed to be some moments where, you know, you have to be separate to do All your right. task as well. Mm. Natalie, where does the education system go in the future? Where is Make it going to go? <laughs> Where's my I'm, stone? I'm actually really looking forward to this generation that is coming through. So this generation are the absolute digital natives. So their brain is wired differently. I don't. I have no evidence to support that whatsoever, other than observations that we're making. 
um, their ability to connect unrelated concepts together to problem solve is extraordinary. So much different to seven, eight, nine years ago. Um, their ability to interact with technology and know what's going on is just incredible. But it's all they know. You know, they only know Apple products or, you know, they can flick with their finger, <laughs> you know, and they go up to TVs and assume they're all interactive. They wouldn't understand that there might be something called a remote control or, um, you know, music just is streamed or comes out of, you know, they don't understand yeah. that music could be recorded in very different ways and how do you actually do that. They have no concept really of that nothing is actually possible yet. Um, and this generation in particular that is coming through, you know, the sort of five to seven-year-olds that are coming through lately, um, it's very, very exciting to see. Their ability to think is quite extraordinary, so long as we give them the skill set to actually manage in this really complex world. I'm finding that they're coming through with much higher levels of anxiety um, and, you know, they're overstimulated. So if we can teach them how to manage that, we're never going to take that away. It's the world that we live in. It's it's high tech. It's always something going on. I mean, we visually represent it all the time with information so it's about how do you how do we teach them to process that and how do we teach them to switch off when it's necessary it's and how so to recognize that do you um, know that has already a name what does it have fear of missing out fomo, FOMO. <laughs> <laughs> it's, in, it's in the dictionary <laughs> well i think it's true though yeah, yeah. i think it's how do you yeah. you know when when everything is that you're ready information i mean we were out the other day and you know in the old days when i was younger somebody would ask a question we'd like we'd all have to try and solve the trivia question yeah. now someone just whips out their phone on google and says oh this is it or imdb or whatever yeah. and it's like oh you know great that you teach like like relaxing your mind what is the project smile smile we yeah, call nice. it our great smile that you do project that. It probably yeah. helps yeah um anything else you would like to no i think that's it And natalie thank you very much for joining me in this conversation and um yeah have a great start of the week thank you very much i enjoyed it thank you very much for listening to this episode if you found it valuable jump over on itunes give us a rating and don't forget if you think about someone who says ah oh, this guy needs to listen to this interview as well then grab the link and send it now in an email to your friend I really want that we change the way our kids learn. Education is king and it's key to success of every economy. If you got inspired by the interview about visual thinking and about visual facilitation as what the Picablo Academy is about, then come to one of the next trainings. When you're in Europe, jump on picablo.com and when you're in Australia and New Zealand, jump on my website. It's marcelvanhove.com and check out the training program. Next one is coming up in Sydney, Melbourne and Perth. Depending on when you book, there might be still an early bird available. So jump over on the website and book your next career step. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.